Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll learn all about hydrocephalus and one family's journey. They determined that she did have hydrocephalus. She needed to have surgery and have a shunt installed. Uh, she had that done, and when she woke up a few hours later, she was a lot better. Plus, all you need to know about managing diabetes. Type 2 is caused by genetic and lifestyle factors. It's a condition characterized by high blood glucose levels caused by either lack of insulin or the body's inability to use insulin efficiently. And what do you do when the diet is over? Go with your list because then you'll be prepared. You won't be susceptible to all those things that are on the aisles. We'll get our checkup from the neck up and a piece from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, with the growing epidemic of diabetes in this country, we'll examine what you need to know. Plus, all the focus in weight loss is on the diet. But what do you do when the diet is over? But first, all about hydrocephalus, its debilitating consequences, and one family's personal journey. Hydrocephalus is one of the most common birth defects, with one out of every 500 births resulting in hydrocephalus each year, and another 6,000 children who go on to develop this disease during their first two years of life. We'll hear with more on this potentially debilitating but treatable problem is Dr. Satish Krishnamurthy. He's professor of neurosurgery at Upstate Medical University. And joining him is Tom Clough, whose child has hydrocephalus and who has become a strong advocate for this disease. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Uh, thank you very thank you. much for having us. Dr. Krishnamurthy, let me start with you. Help us understand what exactly is hydrocephalus? So when we, uh, when we are born, uh, we have uh, the brain developed from a tube. Uh, so the tube has a substance and it's got fluid inside it. This becomes the brain. And so normal brain has some fluid inside it and it's got a purpose and a function. Is that the cerebrospinal fluid that yes, we talk about? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, and so in hydrocephalus, for a variety of reasons, the fluid becomes too much and damages the brain surrounding it. Um, so it builds up and creates <clears throat> pressure on the tissues of the brain? That is a classic explanation, but we really don't understand how exactly this process of extra fluid damages the brain. But we do know if you don't treat hydrocephalus, it causes both cognitive and physical handicap. So who is most at risk for this problem? I did mention in the introduction that it's often a birth defect and affects children, but does it affect others as well? Yes. No age is resistant to hydrocephalus. So uh, there, are, there are 180 different disorders that can lead to hydrocephalus. The most common of them is bleeding into the brain or into the ventricles, that the fluid space are called ventricles, bleeding into the ventricles can cause hydrocephalus, and that is the largest single cause of hydrocephalus. And premature children, pre children born prematurely, I should say, are more at risk because they have more intraventricular hemorrhage. But adults and even older people can have hydrocephalus because of the same reasons. Tumors in the brain, hemorrhage, strokes, infections, head injuries, all of these can cause hydrocephalus. So there's many, many potential causes. How do we know, how does one know, for example, that they're experiencing it? What kind of symptoms show up for hydrocephalus? It depends very much on the age of the uh, person affected. Uh, during infancy, uh, the head becomes larger and larger, and the eyes start deviating downwards. It's called the sunset sign because the eyeballs tend to go down. And this is a classic presentation during infancy. Whereas in 
in an older child or an adult, people can get headaches, people can have nausea, vomiting, um, blurring of vision, um, and other issues. In older age, people can have symptoms very much like dementia. They present with walking difficulty, uh, cognitive issues, and incontinence. So Tom, tell us about your experience. How did you first realize that your child had a problem and what did you see? One morning, it was uh, October 12, 2009, uh, my daughter woke up earlier than normal. Uh, she was really crabby, cranky, wouldn't open her eyes. How old was she at the time? At that time, she was four months old. And she was a premature born prematurely? Yeah, she was born three and a half months premature. Okay. Uh, she spent four months in the NICU before she came home. And there was no sign of it until she was four months old? They did two spinal taps on her uh, in the NICU. We didn't really get an explanation of what was going on. Um, we didn't know what hydrocephalus was. We are kind of led to believe that after these two spinal taps that everything was okay. Uh, until that morning where she was home for just over a month. When I finally got her to open her eyes... As Dr. Krishnamurthy said, she had that sun setting. I only saw the whites of her eyes. Um, and she was trying to vomit, but she had nothing left in her. Um, when we brought her to her pediatrician, he instantly saw her and knew that we needed to come to Upstate immediately. Uh, and she needed to have surgery. Mm -hmm. So getting to that point, so when you have this kind of circumstance with hydrocephalus, what are the treatment options? Well, we don't have any medications that actually treat this excess fluid. Um, all treatments are based, as you know, uh, on, on a theory or a hypothesis as to why fluid accumulates in the brain. Could it be for various reasons, or is it always, I mean, do, do they understand? Like you said, it's theoretical, but do they understand it? Uh, no, we don't have a good understanding, but the popular theory basically says that the brain is like a plastic bag, and it's a, there's a tap open inside the plastic bag, and so if the fluid doesn't go away, it stays back. So all the solutions are surgical. So there are two different kinds of surgeries that we do. One is to put a tube uh, into the ventricles, and put the other end of the tube elsewhere. Most popular place is the belly. Um, so the extra fluid is diverted through this tube into the belly. Uh, this is called a shunt. And the other... And is the, and is the fluid then reabsorbed into the body so it causes no problems or difficulty? Correct. Correct. So that's the whole idea is to get it away from the place where it can be damaging to the brain and put it elsewhere. There is another way to treat the hydrocephalus is, is to make a hole in the bottom of the brain so that the fluid goes away out of the brain. Now, this is called endoscopic third ventriculostomy, but it doesn't work in everybody, especially in, in infants. It doesn't work very well at all. In adults, it works in two-thirds of the people. So primarily, hydrocephalus is a surgical disorder. By that, I mean that you have to do surgery, brain surgery, to relieve the, the problem. Pressure. <clears throat> and does it require repeated surgical procedures, or is it something where it's one and then done, so to speak? It's not usually one and then done. Uh, some patients have very good luck uh, with the shunts. Uh, they get a shunt, and it's never replaced all their life. And some other patients, for reasons not very well known, they block their catheters, so the catheter needs to be replaced. And sometimes they get infected, then the whole shunt system needs to come out, and we have to put a draining catheter for a while, and then replace the shunt again. The problem is not just about surgery or repeated surgery, even diagnosing shunt malfunction is a problem. For, for every time we go to the operating room to fix a shunt, people have, would have come at least three times to the emergency room. So the symptoms of shunt malfunction are similar to common cold, flu, or oh, really? any other disorder. So 
whenever a child has fever, you think shunned infection when it can be sinus infection. That's very, making it very difficult to diagnose then. Correct. And, and the tests are all about radiation, all give radiation because you're doing x-rays and CAT scans. So Those have to be done with caution. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with neurosurgeon Dr. Satish Krishnamurthy and parent and child advocate Tom Clow, and we're talking about hydrocephalus. Um, so basically, your daughter was treated by Dr. Krishnamurthy, and tell us about that briefly. Like, what was her, um, how did all that unfold? Well, the day that she woke up, and she was having all those problems. Her head was enlarged. She had that sun setting. Her pediatrician told us we needed to come here to Upstate to have uh, a neurosurgeon do surgery on her. We came here. Uh, they did a CT scan. They did x-rays. Uh, they determined that she did have hydrocephalus. She needed to have surgery and have a shunt installed. Uh, she had that done. And when she woke up a few hours later, it was she was a lot better. Her eyes were almost back to normal. Uh, she was acting more like herself. It was uh, it was a pretty great feeling, you know. And then, consequently, what happened? In other words, she was four months old at the time. Just take us through the first year of her life. Did she continue to need surgery? Was she able to grow and develop at a normal pace? What happened to her? You know, we assumed that the shunt was going to fix things and things were going to be fine. Uh, it was a month later. We're back at the hospital again. Uh, and her shunt was failing. Like Satish said, it's very hard to um, diagnose this. And the first time we brought her here, we were sent home because there was no, we knew that it was failing. Unfortunately, they could not find evidence in the CT scan. It was failing. Three days later, we came back and we were in emergency surgery again to have another shunt. That one lasted until June of 2010. A similar thing happened. We brought her to the hospital. By then, I would think you were sophisticated enough to recognize some symptoms, though. Yes, we definitely became advocates for her and were really adamant on what was going on with our child, which you have to be when you have a child that has hydrocephalus. You have to be, um, you know, level-headed, but you have to be uh, an advocate for your child and let the physicians and the staff know what's going on. Uh, so you and your wife have become very strong advocates and specifically to develop some funds for further research. Is that right? Tell us about your foundation. What have you done? Uh, about four or five years ago, we started Reach Organization with uh, a bunch of parents and Dr. Kershaw-Murthy. Uh, we got together realizing that the shunt is not a very good option for our children. You know, finding out more about it, realizing what was going on, doing a lot of research ourselves, Come to find out that there's a 40% chance of a child that has a shunt is going to be a productive member of society, and that is unacceptable. Because and, of, and let me just interject here, is that, Dr. Krishnamurthy, because there is potential for brain damage despite the shunt's correct. presence? Correct. So we don't understand how exactly hydrocephalus damages the brain, and there are a lot of things that are not known very well. Um, one of, the, one of the focus of our work, which uh, REACH Foundation has, has, uh, support, has full support for us. Your current research. My current research is about re-examining the fact that brain is indeed a plastic bag, and there is only, um, there's a physical problem, so we need a physical solution. We are looking at it as, uh, we are looking at the fact that water accumulates despite brain being completely permeable, is a chemical problem so that we can fig figure out a solution that is uh, pharmacological. So rather than looking at it as strictly a surgical intervention, you're starting to look at potentially chemical interventions, drugs, what have you, to see if there's some way to reverse this kind of effect Correct. and therefore prevent the kind of long-term potential for damage that there may be. Yes. So you're basically engaged in ongoing research. Correct. And your foundation is helping to support that right now. Yes, we are. I don't want to run out of time. Very briefly, in the little bit of time we have left, how is your daughter doing and how can people get involved? Those two things. She um, just had her sixth shunt replacement in February. How old is she? She is six years old. 
Uh, she is still recovering from that. That was uh, February 10th. After each one of these surgeries, it's taking her longer and longer to recover from this. Our, you can go to help support our organization. You can go to reachorg.org, support us online, uh, like us on Facebook. You can find our Facebook page there. We have we'll have a link to it on yep. our website as well. So you're looking for people to get involved to help support the Reach organization that will basically help fund hydrocephalus. Yes, research. we're also a support group too. So if anybody has hydrocephalus that would like to be part of the group, we're here for you to help support you and get you through that. Wonderful. My guests have been Dr. Satish Krista Murthy, Professor of Neurosurgery at Upstate Medical University, and Tom Clow, whose child has hydrocephalus and who has become an advocate for research for this disease. Coming up next, with the growing epidemic of diabetes in this country, what do you need to know? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's Health Link on Air. Linda Cohen along with you. Diets are abundant. They're all claiming overnight or long-term success, but the truth is that most of us find ourselves geared up during a diet, but at a loss as to what to do after it's over. Here with some advice for this common quandary is Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian nutritionist at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks. Thanks I for always, having me. I always enjoy your perspective. <laughs> you always have some very, very valuable tips for us. Thanks. So during the course, you know, when you know, losing weight clearly is the greatest challenge, uh, especially if you've got a lot of pounds to lose. Mm -hmm. But the common dilemma is, you know, what do you do when the diet's over? And obviously, that the whole notion of successfully maintaining Maintaining your weight is really a challenge for many, many, many people. Yes, definitely. So you've looked into a certain registry. It's called the National Weight Control Registry. Yes. Tell us about it, and what does it have to teach us? Well, it's a great thing I think a lot of people don't know about. You can actually join this registry. They do surveys. They do questionnaires, and they are looking at what successes have people had and how have, had, how have they had those successes in terms of maintaining their weight. Um, they've looked at, oh, they've checked over 10,000 individuals, all right? They look at behavioral. They look at psychological as well as what you're doing as far as your nutrition how, how activity do they get, level. How do they gather this information? Um, people join, so people can join, and then they do the surveys in terms so of it. So they're asking people through, like, how did you do this? What 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 are you doing? So we can get that perspective. Because I think I like this because I think all too often it's negative and we're all like, yeah, everyone loses weight, but then you're going to gain it back. So then people go, oh, well, you know, maybe I shouldn't be really trying. But Why this is, yeah, this is showing that people are actually doing it. So it's something positive instead of all the negative that we hear that, wow, there are people out there doing it. Um, and it's a really interesting site because you can go in there and people offer tips to each other. Um, and it's free. I mean, it's just something you can join in terms of it. And that's an online site. It's an online site. Yep. So you can not only join it, but you could also learn from it. You definitely can. So let's can. talk. Talk a little bit about what you found the, the successful people have done okay. to keep. And on average, what are we talking about in terms of weight loss for these um, people? On an average, members have lost an average of 66 pounds and have kept it off for five and a half years. That's for, pretty significant. That's pretty significant. 45% lost it on their own. 55% lost it with the help of a program. So again, it, you've got to find out what works for you. And I think that's the individual part that's so important. 98% reported that they modified their food intake in some way to lose the weight. And then 94% big figure, increase their physical activity. So those are two very important very facts. Very important facts. That you really do, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer. You, <laughs> right. you, you have to do something with your food intake, obviously. Right. And, and exercise. And exercise. So, so those are two very important factors, but ones that you would be predicting would yes. be the case. Yes. So were, were there any tidbits or any... Yeah, there were some great ones. Um, you know, one of the important ones I liked was 78% of the people ate breakfast every day. So when I look at that, I think, oh, 
that's something we you know we promote as dietitians and people think well I don't really like breakfast but think about it. if you start your day with something your focus you've had even if it's a quick you know piece of fruit and some yogurt or a piece of toast with peanut butter or something you've had something it, it's something to get you started get your metabolism going in terms of it I think what happens when people don't eat breakfast I see people then start snacking and then the mindset is well I really didn't have anything I didn't have any breakfast and I'm getting a little hungry once that hunger starts I think that's an issue so I think that's a really important key 75% of the um, people in this uh, their weight control registry survey weigh themselves once a week so again to me a baseline you don't have to do it every day some people like to do it every day that again individual but you have a baseline you check yourself if you want to weigh on a Monday, you weigh every Monday. If you want to weigh every Wednesday. But they are judging. They are, there's an accountability factor, I think, there. Um, you know, some people don't have to write it down. It's just in their mind. 62% less, um, I mean, watch less than 10 hours of TV. That's, so that's a significant thing. That's a very significant yes. finding, actually, something mm -hmm. you really do want to pay attention right. to. So when you think so of that. So you're less sedentary. You're less sedentary. And what are you less prone to? Watching TV commercials. I remember my husband, um, he had a procedure, so he had to sit there and watch TV. And he's like, I've never seen so many food commercials. So again, when you're thinking of that, you're not sitting there going, oh, that looks good. Maybe I'll have a snack. Not even thinking, am I so really, truly? So it's subliminally really, right. really so we stoking, get into that, that stoking. late night snacking. In also, terms of I, it strikes me, and this is something we've talked about before and other people have talked about, is this notion of mindful eating. Definitely. It seems to me if you're watching TV or you're into something that's kind of grabbing your attention, you're much less likely to pay attention to what it is you're eating. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you may also pay less attention to whether you're full that's right Definitely. so you're you're kind of distracted yes and yes. then you just tend to maybe eat eat eat, eat and just eat, keep eat. shoveling right it in. yeah because a lot of times what um what people do is they get it i call it like their little zone they're in their little favorite chair they're in their little comfort zone they're watching tv they are not focusing on what they're eating it's like oh yeah i think i'm hungry oh yeah someone else is having popcorn give me some popcorn again no idea in terms of did I chew it? Did I taste it? Did I really need it? Was I really hungry in terms of it? Um, another idea in, in terms of what they've done is 90% of the people average an exor um, exercise about an hour a week. Most through walking. You mean an hour a day. I mean an average an, an hour a day. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so they've done it through mostly through walking. So it doesn't have to be joining a gym. It doesn't have to be, you know, doing a spin class. It can be just something basic. We all can get a pair of sneakers. We can walk here. You can walk at work. You can walk after work. We can walk. And make yourself, you know, have more opportunities to walk that you might not consider. Like maybe don't park right next to the store. Right. If you have a big parking lot, you can walk a little bit. Right. Yeah. And and I think if, if this is, I think this is true in, in other conversations I've had with actually exercise physiologists. It isn't necessarily sustained, um, cont continuous exercise that is, that is as important as just throughout the day throughout having the day. bursts of energy mm -hmm. and exercise that right. you can feel like you are moving so keeping moving is right. really important and that I think that's sometimes people think well I can't I don't have an hour but do you have 15 minutes here just like you're saying 15 minutes here 15 minutes here can I take a 20 minute you know lunch lunch break instead? or climb the stairs climb rather the than stairs, taking the taking elevators. the elevators right definitely so these are all easy things breakfast decreased tv trying to weigh yourself, and increasing your physical activity. And this is where the people have seen the good results in keeping the weight off. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with registered dietitian nutritionist Maureen Franklin. We're talking about what to do when the diet is over. Now, that whole word diet is a problem. It and is. I know you have a philosophy <laughs> on this, and I've thought this throughout my life, that the whole concept of being on a diet sets up all kinds of psychological issues yes. for people yes because when people say i'm on a diet they tend to think deprivation i'm going to be on this for a limited period of time i'm going to lose weight maybe make the doctor happy do what i need to do then i'll go back i'll go back to the way i'm eating when we think of that we are setting ourselves up for oh i can't have this or i shouldn't have that where if you think of it in terms of long-term lifestyle changes i need to lose some weight be realistic about setting a goal in terms of that look at what you're doing do you eat just like we were talking about do you eat in front of the tv do something and saying every time i'm having a snack let's eat at the kitchen table and in addition to that when you're the whole notion of being on a diet versus 
off the diet mm -hmm. is part of the problem, too. That's right. That somehow, even if you have a positive attitude toward the diet, mm -hmm. now that you're off the diet, you tend to slip back into right. perhaps less focused eating yes. habits. Mm -hmm. and, and that's less aware. the key. It's focus that in terms of what do you want to focus for you and your own individual lifestyle and your own individual needs in terms of that. Everyone's on a diet. We all have to be on a diet to eat. It's But we use that in terms of that that whole focus and thought is oh, diet. Oh, yeah, I got to go on a diet. Nope, we need to look, we need to start changing that as much as we can because it's important. Also, it's really important to make sure that the goals that you have are maybe, you know, clearly thought out, realistic, maybe not too vague. Mm hmm you know, focused goals, as I said, but right. also maybe not too strict. Definitely. Because again, you have to, are you doing it because you read it on an online article or someone had, somebody else had success with that? You have to do goals that are going to be specific to work for you. It's something as easy as if you're a, a night person, but you're telling yourself to get up at five o'clock in the morning to go for a walk. Is that realistic for you? That's not. It's so you hard need to, to sustain. Think, yeah. Even you need if to you look tried. and say, I'm a night person, so I'm going to do an evening walk. That's what you have to look at. What goal is going to work for you that's realistic and that you can actually do? Don't set yourself up. So how about things, for example, like people are talking about drinking a lot of water or enough water. How important is that in terms of maintaining your weight? Well, there's different thoughts and views on it. I think it's an important thing because I think sometimes people tend to think that they might be hungry, then they might just actually be thirsty in terms of it. A glass of water is something that it will make you get up from that chair, go to the kitchen sink, get the glass of water, and then maybe you have time to actually think, maybe I'm not really hungry for a snack. Maybe I was just thirsty. This is all I need. But it gives you that break. I think that's what. So I think water is very important. How about some just common sense things like, would you recommend not keeping kind of um, fattening foods in the house, for example? Does that help people in terms of their, you know, their shopping habits, for oh, example? Oh, I think so because, again, sometimes people have certain things in the house, and when you know, I would do like an interview with them, I'd say, who are you buying them for? And then they would think about it. No one else in the house might want them. They're buying them for themselves. So if you're the one and you know where those cookies are that you like, they're there. Where if you want cookies, go out, buy yourself a cookie, bring a cookie home, enjoy the cookie. So that so really can make, I think it can make, make a big a difference. difference. How about things like shopping, food shopping when you're hungry? Again, does that make a difference? I know these sound like kind of... It sound basic, but it's stuff we need to think about. If you're running in after work and you haven't had lunch, you're going to be the person that's going to grab that thing because it looks good. And then, oh, I'd like this, and I'd like a little thing of snacks. I think it's very, very important. And go with a list. I know that sounds basic too, but go with your list because then you'll be prepared. You won't be susceptible to all those things that are on the aisles and all the wonderful looking cookies and cakes and candies that are out there. What's your philosophy also on this idea of grazing versus three square meals a day? I know I've heard different philosophies and clearly when you're on a diet, everything's regimented so you're following a particular meal plan, but then when it's over, you're kind of left to your own devices. What makes sense in terms of how to approach when to eat? Well, I think I tend to like, if, if again, you have to look at each individual, but if you are the person that you like small little meals and that tends to be satisfying for you, I think that's good. I don't like the concept that I can never have a snack. And I think people think, oh, I should never have a snack. If you like snacks, put them in. I personally like a mid-afternoon snack. It helps me get to the evening, you know. But that's definitely a personal thing. But you do have to be careful because the grazing means that you're not actually thinking of it. And, again, when we go back so to those mindful, goals, mindful. mindful eating, set an approximate time. Like, I'm going to have my snack time between 1 and 2, not like, oh, I'll have it whenever. Again, you want to be mindful that you're hungry. You want to be mindful that you're eating that snack because you actually are hungry and you want a snack. And so it some fits degree in. of structure really is important. Structure is important. So this idea of diet, you're structured, off diet, you're not, really can't work. Right. It's because you're like setting you have, yourself up. That it's snack. not like you have to be terribly rigid. No. Mm -mm. But right. you need to have some sense of structure. Right. And, and how you approach food. Yes. Is having a buddy important? I think having a buddy is very important. Probably a lot in terms of physical activity that you can get someone to go and walk with you. Um, you can have someone just to talk because to me that's a stress level. We can relieve it through walking in terms of it. Some people work good with a buddy system when they're trying to make those dietary changes. 
other people do not and again that's where you have to individually how do I work am I good telling my friend that I want to lose weight or do I want to keep it private do I want to get my family involved you really have to look at how you as an individual how that is going to affect you because sometimes people turn into the food police and then that totally sets people up you're not going to tell me what to do right sure. so you want to go towards that positive aspect what's going to be positive for me if my friend's going to help me great if they're going to drive me crazy, then I need to know that, that they don't need to know about that. Yeah. So it's definitely, and it's a personal thing. It's such a personal thing that we need to, we, we need to think about that. So just bottom line, what's your, just what's, what you want to leave people with? I want to leave people with that you can lose weight. It is going to take time. All right. But be kind to yourself. Be realistic. And you can set maintain. Set small goals. And then you can maintain. It might, it's going to take time sometimes if you have a large amount of weight to lose. But think positive. Go slow. Go slow and enjoy life. And, and enjoy eat things. slow. And eat slow and <laughs> savor your food. <laughs> Thanks so much. My guest has been Maureen Franklin, registered dietitian nutritionist with Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. You'll live six or seven years longer or surprises from speaking up. Well, folks, the single best thing you can do for your health is to stop smoking. You start getting healthier immediately and you'll likely live six to seven much healthier years longer. Turns out the research also shows that what doctors say or don't say has a big impact on whether someone stops smoking. Recently, I called my cousin, a lifelong smoker, and said that one of my graduate school mentors about his age just had a cancerous lung tumor removed and that even with all the recent progress, the survival rate for lung cancer is still relatively low. And I said, he is one of the most important people in my life and that I would really miss him if he got lung cancer and died because I'd like us to grow old together. And so I really hope he would quit smoking and that he'd feel better almost immediately and probably live a lot longer, like six to seven years if he did. He said his wife and me are the only two people who ever really talked with him about quitting. Now that's amazing. Where is everybody? Then he said that he'd made a couple serious quit attempts. Yay! With success for a few months. Yay! And that he's going to try again soon. Yay! I said, cool. Oh, good luck. Let me know if there's something I can do. He thanked me for my concern. A few weeks later, a new client came in my office, and I smelled smoke on him. I asked. He said, yes, a pack a day. I said, research shows that if you quit, you'll start being healthier immediately and likely live six to seven years longer. A week later, he thanked me for saying that and said he just bought his nicotine replacement inhaler and is quitting very soon. Wow, just from saying that. The very next day, a colleague who I'd had a similar conversation with stopped by my office to say he'd quit, smoke-free 10 days already, and feels great. <gasps> oh, cool, congratulations, high five, high five, high five, way cool. We had a little party right then. I am so glad I spoke up. I'm betting it might work for you and your loved ones too. And by the way, Upstate has a free quit tobacco program. Just call 800-464-8668. That's 800-464-8668. Or you can check our healthlinkonair.org website. I'm Rich O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in and happy breathing. Next up, all the focus in weight loss is on the diet, but what do you do when the diet is over? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. 
This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Linda Cohen along with you. If you have diabetes, keeping your blood sugar levels within the range recommended by your doctor can be challenging. That's because so many things affect your blood sugar levels. Here with more on how to best manage all of this is Christy Shaver. She's a registered nurse and certified diabetes educator and the education team leader at Upstate's Joslin Diabetes Center. Welcome, Christy. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So having diabetes requires both knowledge and discipline. Wouldn't you agree? Yes. Tell us about that. Yes, I absolutely would agree. Um, Diabetes is very complex. It's very time-consuming. And not only do you need the information and the knowledge to best self-manage, it's important uh, with that knowledge to also have the ability to make decisions day by day that can help to keep your blood sugars under control. You you need that uh, discipline. uh, Yeah, and obviously that's going to be a complex thing to understand. We're going to get into the detail of that a little bit, but help us first understand if there's a difference in the type of care that one might need if you had type 1 diabetes versus type 2 diabetes. Maybe just do a quick little thumbnail overview of the difference in terms of the disease entities, and then if there were, is there a difference in how you might approach them? Sure. Um, just to add to that point, um, you know, with the national diabetes statistics of 2014, we do know that 29.1 million Americans, or 9.3% of the population, have diabetes. And of that 29.1 million, 21 million were diagnosed, and 8.1 million are undiagnosed, and that is with type 2 diabetes. We also know that 86 million Americans uh, do have prediabetes. So of those statistics, 90 to 95% of those Americans with diabetes have type 2, whereas about 5 to 10% have type 1. Clarify for us, though. At one point, I remember in my early years hearing that type 1 was also called juvenile diabetes, but is that always true? What is, what is the distinction? So the distinction is that type 1 diabetes, which was formerly known as juvenile diabetes, but we know now that even adults get it, uh, is a condition characterized by high blood glucose levels caused by a total lack of insulin. And it occurs when the body's immune system attacks those insulin-producing beta cells in the pancreas and destroys them. At that point, the pancreas then produces little or no insulin. And so, yes, it is more characterized to have um, the onset during uh, young, the young years, younger um, children and adults, um, young adults as well as older adults can get it. Um, so, so the distinction is the fact that in type 1, there is no insulin being produced within the body. Exactly. And type 2? So type 2 is caused by genetic and lifestyle factors. It's a condition characterized by high blood glucose levels um, caused by either lack of insulin or the body's inability to use insulin efficiently. And type 2 diabetes, which again is 90 to 95 percent of those with it, uh, develops most often in middle-aged and older adults. However, we are seeing a rise in our younger children developing type 2 diabetes at an alarming rate. And they're talking about this as being secondary to the issue of obesity in this country. Can you very briefly do the link between obesity and type 2 diabetes? Yes. Um, The lifestyle factors, as I mentioned, which is one of the causes of type 2 diabetes, those factors would definitely include obesity, uh, poor eating habits, uh, sedentary lifestyle. And so the results of obesity, though not everyone who is uh, defined with a uh, BMI uh, in the obesity range would develop type 2 diabetes, uh, the risk is significantly higher. Yeah, and something about the fat cells maybe in interrupting or interfering with insulin utilization, that kind of thing. Yes, with type 2 diabetes um, is actually a complex uh, metabolic dysfunction state, meaning that the body does make insulin. However, because of various factors of um, insulin resistance, which um, fat cells and obesity play a part in, uh, the body is not able to utilize the insulin appropriately. And over time, then, the body is actually not able to produce enough insulin sufficiently to make the body function as it should. But getting back to my initial question to you was, in terms of type 1 and type 2, are, are there different approaches in terms of 
controlling your blood sugar or I mean are there are there different concerns with those two types? Yes, there are different concerns. Um, with type 1 diabetes, they can only use insulin. So pills are not an option for someone with type 1 diabetes. Whereas with type 2, not only might they and most likely be on different oral agents, which are different types of pills for diabetes, they could also be on insulin. They could also be on something called an injectable, where it's a medicine that is injected, but it's not insulin, but it helps the various um, metabolic dysfunctions of the type 2 diabetes. And also to include with type 1 diabetes, it's an autoimmune condition. It, is, it does have a genetic component. So there are other autoimmune conditions. And so people with type 1, as they work with their medical provider, have to be screened for other autoimmune conditions that they're more susceptible to. So there are absolute differences. But what I'd like to talk about today with you as we approach this whole thing is are the concern or the things people need to keep in mind with regard to the different things that can affect blood sugar, whether you're type 1 or type 2? And I'll have you comment on that as we go through them. But to begin with, what are some of the myths that exist with diabetes? Sure. Um, there's a lot of old information out there, and we have become so much uh, more knowledgeable in the field of diabetes. Uh, but a lot of myths exist. One um, comes to mind where, uh, for example, there's a common held belief that eating too much sugar can cause diabetes. And it's recommended that people should avoid intake of sugar-sweetened beverages, uh, such as uh, fruit drinks, uh, juices, sodas, etc., um, because these will raise blood sugar, blood glucose level, and actually they provide hundreds of extra calories that your body can't burn, and unburned calories can lead to weight gain, which then is uh, increasing the risk of development of type 2 diabetes, and for those with diabetes, it's raising their blood sugar. So in fact, sugary beverages and high sugar intake can play a role. Absolutely. Um, anything of high sugar that your body um, really just, it, it's going to quickly use that fuel and it's going to wear off. It's not a healthy type of carbohydrate. Um, that's going to raise blood sugars and increase the need for insulins or medicines. Um, so sugar's one part that um, affects blood sugars. Also, um, Various foods affect blood sugars in different ways. Uh, you could eat um, a piece of bread and your body might use that carbohydrate differently than maybe a piece of fruit. So, it, so food, as we mm -hmm. started to say, there are very many things that affect blood sugar level. Mm -hmm. Food clearly is one of them. High sugar content, fruits, which have high sugar content, even though it's natural sugar, can do the same. So you need to understand what foods are healthy for you. Yes, and how those foods affect your blood sugars um, is an important um, piece to understand, and people are able to monitor their blood sugars after eating various foods to figure that out. Um, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with diabetes educator Christy Shaver. We're talking about how to manage your diabetes. Go ahead. So. Other thought. factors that can affect your blood sugars would be um, activity versus inactivity. So exercise is very important. Exercise is essential. It's a cornerstone of, of care for those with diabetes or prediabetes, whereas prediabetes, uh, blood sugar levels have uh, are above normal range, but not to a diagnostic state of diabetes. But regardless, prediabetes and diabetes, you need to eat healthy. You need to be active because when you're not active, your body's not able to burn the carbohydrates. It's not able to use the insulin properly in your body, and it can result in high blood sugars, whereas there's so many beneficial factors to actually being active. How important is it to stay hydrated? It's very important to stay hydrated because when you have high blood glucose, uh, you are predisposed and more likely to, to develop dehydration especially for someone with type 1 diabetes who might be having a sick day and their blood sugars are high, um, fluids are just essential. And you just made a great segue because my next question was, you said having a sick day. What happens in this type of, you know, at this time of year we have a lot of illness, cold, allergies, all kinds of things besetting all of us. 
How about if you have diabetes? How does that affect your blood sugar? It makes it more difficult to manage your blood sugars on a sick day. If you do have an infection or a cold or the flu, we do advise um, that any person with diabetes uh, to have a flu shot for sure, unless there's a reason not to, you'd speak to your medical provider about that. But on a sick day, uh, you're mo you most likely require a higher um, insulin level to take care of the in insulin um, uh, the needs in your body. Um, so blood sugars tend to be higher. Um, if you're not feeling well, it makes it more difficult to take care of yourself. And diabetes requires so many steps to be safe as far as monitoring and taking your medications. So it really complicates the picture beyond just feeling sick. So you do have to maintain your, your, medica your diabetes medication even if you're taking additional medications for illness. Yes, that is a great point. For people with type 1 diabetes, they can never um, omit and not take their insulin on a sick day sometimes they even need more even if they're eating less um, and blood sugars do tend to be higher when you're not feeling well and your body's fighting an infection so you need to definitely touch base with your medical provider and you do need to maintain your diabetes schedule how about things like alcohol alcohol consumption how does that affect your blood sugar levels in either type 1 or type 2? Sure. Alcohol, um, actually for those that take insulin, uh, with alcohol use you have to be cautious because if you were to have alcoholic beverages, you're taking your insulin. If you are not, if you're not eating, you actually can have a severe low blood sugar a number of hours later. So you do cautiously um, have to take an alcohol. Also for people with type 2 diabetes who take medications such as metformin, also known as glucophage, you have to be very careful with alcohol consumption. So you really, this whole idea of don't drink alcohol, alcoholic beverages on an empty stomach is a really important thing to remember because it has very severe consequences. Yes, it can initially raise blood sugars, but the alcohol component in combination with how your body breaks it down and also in combination with the medicines you might be taking could actually put you at risk for that low blood sugar. So it's not that it's t it has to be avoided, but definitely talk to your provider or your pharmacist to know what medications you're taking and what side effects So it are. definitely is a factor. Mm -hmm. How about things like stress? I mean, everyone, stress is just part of everyday life. But if you have diabetes, how does stress influence your blood sugar levels or impact them? Stress is a very complex situation. Infecting your blood sugars uh, can have a negative impact. Um, stress can... So it can raise your blood sugars? Yes, it can. It can uh, because sometimes when we're stressed, we might eat more. We might um, be challenged to stay on schedule of taking our blood sugars and taking our medications. We might forget, for yeah. example, if there's too much stress going on. Exactly. Also, just to briefly mention that um, not only stress, but um, other concerns such as depression, the incidence with diabetes and depression is very high. So it's very important to seek support uh, from you know the community resources that you might have with a medical provider, counselor, Support person. You always give me the best segues because my next question was, what do you recommend people to do in terms of their, their community, their family, where can they get the best support? What roles can people play other than yourself in terms of helping you control your blood sugar? I think it's very important for um, those family members and friends and those that are supporting people with diabetes um, to, to really offer uh, support, kindness, empathy, uh, really to uh, be able to have that person with diabetes to be able to rely on them because diabetes has got a huge emotional component and you really need someone to support you, avoiding um, guilt and condemnation for choices should be avoided. So definitely that emotional support um, is, is essential. And there are community resources. You're involved, for example, at the Joslyn Center. Tell us very, very briefly what are some of the things you offer. Yes, at the Jocelyn Diabetes Center, we offer a Living with Diabetes comprehensive program. It's interactive sessions. We actually have three programs, a couple hours each, and your primary care provider can go to our uh, Jocelyn website through Upstate and print off the referral form. It's a simple referral form and it's a very engaging segment where patients sit together and talk about the issues of diabetes and learn how to better manage. So there's a lot to learn. You, need, you definitely need support if you're 
a diabetic. And I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing all this very, very valuable information. My guest has been Christy Shaver. She's a registered nurse and certified diabetes educator with the Upstate Joslyn Diabetes Center. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Gwen A. Nussbaum is a psychoanalyst in private practice in Manhattan. Her poem, Lines, makes connections between parent and child, between youth and middle age, finding a bond of sympathy in the midst of sadness. Here is Lines. What if the heart doesn't want to park? Stay in the right lane, turn left at the light. What if it wishes to run over lines? I watched my father keep to the right each morning, travel the lane of husband, father, son, lines across forehead wedged over eyes seeking exit. Now I know why discipline wasn't enough. Understand him through my own lines, the ones on my forehead asking, must I? The ones rolling under bulging stomach and etched in the chair from a confined torso, the one I longed to transform into an arrow, shot into the light of a river, bursting into an arching rainbow, the wind a howl. Thank you for joining us for Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we examine the newest information in the fight against kidney cancer, plus how AFib can lead to stroke, and getting the most reliable medical information online. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter, or you can check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.